Last week, Republicans in Congress sent out this memo outlining all the ways the party planned to defend the president against impeachment. With its congressional seal and its attached footnotes, this memorandum looked formal and serious. But the language inside betrayed a kind of paranoia. It talked about intelligence committee hearings being held in a basement bunker. The words impeachment inquiry were bracketed in scare quotes. I now recognize Ranking Member Nunes for any remarks you may wish to make. Watching the impeachment hearings last week, it was like watching this memo come to life. In a July open hearing of this committee following publication of the Mueller report, the Democrats engaged in a last-ditch effort to convince the American people that President Trump is a Russian agent. The ranking Republican member of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, he called the impeachment a spectacle. He said it had a cult-like atmosphere. So Americans can rightly suspect that his phone call with President Zelensky was used as an excuse for the Democrats to fulfill their Watergate fantasies. But I'm glad that on Wednesday, after the Democrats staged six weeks of secret depositions in the basement of the Capitol, like some kind of strange cult, the American people finally got to see this farce for themselves. I made the comment that if you had tuned in to the impeachment hearing for the first time and had ne- genuinely never heard Republicans and Democrats presenting their talking points, if you launched Evan Nunes, I think you'd be very confused. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Washington Post. It was kind of a mashup of the, De- of the Devin Nunes' greatest hits. Shane says to understand the Republican strategy here, it helps to listen to Nunes, to listen as he bounces from argument to argument, some that sound legalistic, others that might seem a little random. Even as they were accusing Republicans of colluding with Russians, the Democrats themselves were colluding with Russians by funding the Steele dossier, which was based on Russian and Ukrainian sources. Meanwhile, they turn a blind eye to Ukrainians meddling in our elections because the Democrats were cooperating with that operation. Nunes doesn't want to talk about allegations of corruption in the White House. He wants to talk about how Democrats tried to rig the 2016 presidential election, even though they lost. And I think you might look at it and say, you know, what is he talking about? The DNC and Ukraine and what's the Steele dossier and naked pictures of President Trump? And I, I, where, where are we going with this? Um, all things that to my ear sounded perfectly coherent in the Devin Nunes kind of view of things, but I think might strike an outside observer as a hodgepodge. Listening to you, I can't tell whether you think this is careless or strategic. That's a great question. There is no doubt that he is being strategic to some degree and he's trying to be partisan and undermine Democrats and um, and undermine their case as well. But I think that Devin Nunes genuinely believes many of the things that he says. Every kind of line of storyline that is meant to deflect from what happened with Russia or is meant to try and push things over to Democrats or is meant to defend President Trump by drawing attention to another narrative, almost all of those have as their origin or their chief proponent, Devin Nunes. So today on the show, Shane's going to try to explain the Republican defense of the president 
by explaining Devin Nunes himself. Because Nunes is one of the architects of this impeachment counter-narrative. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I want to do kind of a basic biography of Devin Nunes. I'm, I'm wondering if you can just introduce me to who this guy is, because when I looked back at how Devin Nunes got into politics, he seemed to know at a very young age what he wanted to do, and he wasn't afraid to fight for it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, so Nunes was elected to Congress uh, in 2002. He's from a district in Central California. Uh, he's been in Congress for a good amount of time now, and you know. I, he, I would put him kind of in this category of like there were these sort of new Republicans, as I think of them, kind of the pre-Tea Party wave. He's not exactly with them in the Tea Party, but clearly is a part of this, the part wing of the party that's coming into office. George W. Bush is president. 9-11 has just happened. And, you know, he really does kind of, I guess assert himself, you know, pretty quickly and is somebody who rises to prominence, gets this, you know, really coveted position on the intelligence committee. And, you know, I think is inarguably, I mean, as a lawmaker goes, his biography, I mean, he's he's quite a success. I mean, to, you know, to come at a fairly young age and rise to a position of such importance in the Congress and on this committee uh, it speaks well, certainly, I think, of his, his political acumen. I mean, he started running for office in his very early 20s so early that one of his opponents at some point took him to court and said, you're not old enough to run. <laughs> and he fought back and said, well, but I'm going to be old enough if I get sworn in. Yeah. And, that, and that's, a, that's a very revealing anecdote because Devin Nunes is a fighter. And he is litigious, too, by the way. Uh, and I think he's somebody who knew what he wanted and he went after it. He's uh, ambitious, I guess, in a positive way, uh, we would say there. And, you know, you see kind of where he's come and accrued all of this influence and has decided to use it. I mean, he is that's something I've always found to be kind of, you know, in a way impressive objectively about Nunes is that he's gathered this influence and he's not afraid to deploy it. And sometimes on you know, projects that seem really kind of petty and insignificant. But if he believes in something, he goes to the mat for it. So Devin Nunes became the chair of the House Intelligence Committee in 2014. But he approached that role really differently than a lot of people. You've sort of alluded to this a little bit. Can you can you explain how he approached the role differently? Yeah. So in the broad sense, any semblance of bipartisanship really started to dissolve when Devin Nunes became the chairman of that committee. His Republican and Democratic predecessors had pretty good working relationships, which is not to say that the committee didn't experience partisanship. It did. Um, but it has become 
ferociously partisan under Nunes. Um, and I think that is largely the tone that he set as the leader. So you attribute that to him, not as part of a broader shift in Washington, but that he was actively pushing the partisanship forward. Oh, yes. And I, and I look back at predecessors of his, for instance, on the committee by comparison, when the, compa- the committee was run by Mike Rogers, uh, the Republican, and uh, a guy named Dutch Ruppersberger from Maryland, um, they had a good relationship. They got along well. They liked each other. They still appear at public events together and like talk about the good old days. And there was huge partisanship in Washington then. I mean, the part is the, the era of partisanship we're living in now is intense, but it's been intense for 20, 25 years. So how did the committee change when Nunes took control? The tone of any committee is going to be set by the chairman and the things that they choose to investigate. And I think that Nunes kind of got these, you know, these bees in his bonnet about certain things, one of which was this whole issue about this island base in the Azores. Um, He wanted to have a new intelligence center, a kind of fusion center, which was going to be a hub for lots of information placed out in the Azores. And he's of Portuguese descent and the Azores are a um, um, Portuguese. Territory. And a lot of questions came up, understandably, about like, well, why do you want to put this base out on this kind of remote island when there's already a site that the Pentagon wants to use for it outside of London, where, you know, we have lots of people and we have other military bases and we have a relationship with the partner services in the UK. And he became obsessed with putting it out there and I think took great umbrage at the idea that people were questioning whether he might have some kind of personal motive for doing so. And I can just remember talking with him about it and reporting on this. And he became just convinced that people in the Pentagon were lying to him uh, and that they were fabricating documents and that this was all very, very personal. And I think that when you start taking political and policy battles personally, as he so often does, it sets a tone for the committee where it becomes not so much that we are here to do oversight of the intelligence community in a bipartisan way, but we are here to pursue things that are in the interest of the chairman and the fights that he wants to have. And to me, that particular fight over this base really kind of was illustrative of a tone that then carries forward for the next several years when he's the chairman. There's also this stylistic difference in terms of how Nunez approaches his role that I think explains why he's appealing to some people. Like in one profile, other members talked about how he was the least read member of the Intelligence Committee. There's a log where you can see how much people in the committee are coming and reading all of the documents that they have access to. And folks commented that he was not reading those documents, but he was going on journeys far afield and speaking to people who are fighting or who are off, you know, doing military work and then coming back with ideas about what to do about that in Congress. And I think that's kind of interesting. It speaks to his approach to the job. Yeah, I think I think that's right. You know, the documents that people read on those committees, they are documents that are produced by the intelligence agencies. And I think Devin Nunes, in his mind, probably looks at that a bit as that's party line stuff. That's the stuff that they want me to see. I'm going to go out and do my own investigations and talk to people on the front lines and get their real opinions. And, you know, that's an admirable instinct on some level. But to be an effective 
legislator and overseer, you know, I guess you have to do both. You can't just ignore the documentation that is being produced by the agencies that you are overseeing. I spoke to one intelligence official once who was among the people who briefed uh, Nunes when he first became the chairman of the committee. And he had an assessment that's very much in line with your description of him not being a reader. He said he was the least informed person about the intelligence community that I had ever, ever briefed who was in a position of leadership. And it, it wasn't that it's not that Devin Nunes is not intelligent. He is clearly a smart person with the capacity to absorb lots of information. Um, it was almost as if he didn't want to hear any of that. And what this person told me was what that then put him in the position of was being fundamentally ignorant about how the very large apparatus that he was about to oversee actually works. And I think that when you don't know how something works, you're going to start filling in the blanks with how you think it works. And what you see in a lot of Devin Nunes' theories and the investigations and the paths that he goes down is, I think, somebody who is on a fundamental level misguided. And he is operating based on a set of assumptions that are often not true, or they are several degrees off the truth, that they get him uh, uh, down a path that's not productive, and sometimes they get him in trouble. You know, it's interesting to hear you describe him that way, because I felt like reading about Devin Nunes, I saw this thread from where from when he was quite young that was this distrust of authority. But then, of course, he had become the authority to some extent. Yeah, it's a, that's a very interesting observation. I think for a lot of people who do tend to see, you know, forces aligned and the world controlled by a handful of people, there is this inherent distrust of authority. And to be clear, that's often a good thing when you have members of an intelligence oversight committee. I mean, his committee and the Senate committee that's its counterpart were created because in the 1960s and 70s, the CIA and the FBI were spying on Americans and spying on war protesters and infiltrating protester groups and wiretapping Martin Luther King and doing these just horrible things that were just abject violations of Americans' civil liberties and their privacy. So we created these committees and you want somebody sitting up there who's going to be skeptical of authority and is checking it and making sure that these agencies are adhering to their powers and operating within the law and not going beyond the boundaries. But, you know, you're right that generally speaking, you know, once you kind of have that position of authority, it sort of tempers your view of the world, I think, a little bit. And if anything, it seems like Devin Nunes has become in some ways more paranoid um, and more ferocious uh, uh, since he's been on the committees, which is usually not the trend with people in those positions. This distrust of government, it's something Nunes seems to share with the president. After Trump's election, Nunes joined his transition team, and he has been loyal ever since. Some Democrats say too loyal. They point to one incident in particular where they began to doubt Nunes' impartiality. It's become known as the Midnight Run. This is back in 2017. Nunes was running the House Intelligence Committee then, charged with investigating the president's ties to Russia. At first, Nunes seemed to take the task seriously. He even worked closely with the current chair, Adam Schiff. But then, Nunes suddenly changed course, cutting the Democrats out of the process. 
there's this moment where he, if I remember correctly, he maybe even did it in an Uber or a Lyft, but he goes over to the White House and is sharing information with them about things that he's finding his, in his investigation. And this is such a breach of the way things are normally done. I mean, when you have an oversight committee that is conducting an investigation, it's supposed to be independent. And when that investigation is naturally going to touch on the question of whether the current occupant of the White House was involved in this, you know, this crime against the country, you don't go over and then meet with people in the White House about the course of your investigation. And I think when that happened, it it really raised profound questions about whether or not Devin Nunes was a truly independent overseer or whether he was acting as a political loyalist and an assistant to the president in trying to shut down the investigation that his committee was running. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) what was striking to me is that it wasn't just that Devin Nunes sort of leapt out of an Uber and went to the White House to meet with people. It was that the next day he held a press conference and, and said, you know, I, you know, I'm revealing these things to the president because I think it's important that he knows and I'm, I'm warning him. And it, ju- it just creates all of these questions about what your motivations are and where your loyalties lie. Yeah. And it was needlessly theatrical as well. I mean, if Devin Nunes wanted, for whatever reasons, to try and warn the White House. There are plenty of ways for him to do that that don't involve these sort of midnight theatrics and holding press conferences. But this is, again, this is kind of, this is kind of Nunes's style. I mean, he, there is a sort of righteous indignation that seems to be motivating so much of what he does. And again, I come back to the idea that he really does believe this because some of this stuff, because even the strongest supporters of the president in the Republican Party in the House do not go as far as Devin Nunes. There are multiple storylines and they're intersecting and some of them kind of collide and some of them just glide past each other and some of them go down rabbit holes. And, you know, it's something that, you know, this isn't just my impression either. I mean, a lot of reporters will tell you this, but frankly, other Republicans privately will agree with me on this and will say, look, I mean, sometimes he goes too far and he just goes off on these tangents. Um, And he can be an effective defender of the president, certainly by attacking the press. But sometimes he kind of goes down these these paths that don't really lead to any kind of natural defense and start getting people off the track, I think, and become very tangential to what the Republicans are trying to do, which is, in this case, just undermine the argument about Ukraine and whether the president did anything wrong. Shane thinks that might be part of why, during last week's impeachment hearings, Nunes seemed to take a back seat. There was even a bit of a a resignation in his tone of voice, I think, as he was reading his opening statement, almost as if to say, well, I'm going to say these things, but no one's listening to me. On the first day of questioning, Nunes ceded much of his time to Jim Jordan, who Republicans just added to the Intelligence Committee a couple weeks ago. Jim Jordan being brought onto that committee... I mean, I had two reactions to that. One, I mean, he is a very reliable you know, pugilist and defender of the president and is pretty good on TV and getting into it with witnesses and really kind of, you know, mixing it up. But I think it was also 
an expression of some lack of confidence on the part of Republican leadership in the House in Devin Nunes and a fear that if Devin Nunes were really running the Republican show on this, they wouldn't be talking about the credibility of these witnesses and they wouldn't be talking about so much whether it was a quid pro quo really or did the Ukrainians know this. They'd be talking about these names that people have never heard of like Andrea Chalupa and Andrei Telezhenko and the embassy in Ukraine and the Black Ledger and it would just be off the rails. So you think Jim Jordan is there as kind of a backstop to Nunez. I think he is, yes, because Jim Jordan will stay to some degree focused, right? I mean, he may kind of, you know, talk about the Democrats and their collusion with Ukraine in 2016. And again, that's sort of, it's one of these territories that you go into where there's just no evidence of it. And it's, I think it's been fairly debunked. But for the most part, what Jim Jordan is good at is really getting into it with witnesses and trying to undermine their credibility or paint them as biased. Um, and he seems a lot less interested in kind of tilting at windmills the way that Nunes often is. I wonder, too, though, you know, we've we've talked a lot about how these kind of conspiracy theory narratives have taken over politics in the era of Trump. And you're really making the case that so many of these ideas, they, they come from someone like Devin Nunes himself. So as these impeachment hearings move on, I wonder if he's someone to watch, because if he begins to change his mind at all, <laughs> it will be meaningful. I think more likely, or maybe the... The other thing to really watch for him is when does he start to start kind of going back to the well, if you like, and pulling out some of these other conspiracy theories? And are there members of the committee that might try and tamp that down? You know, does Jim Jordan come in you know, and sort of say, you know, will the gentleman yield and give me uh, give me the time? It, it'll be to some degree, you know, important to watch, not just because it's, you know, about where Devin Nunes is going, but he does still have influence in that party. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like he is this sort of of, you know, petulant adolescent that everyone just sort of tolerates and tries to stick in a corner. He's the ranking member of the Intelligence Committee. You know, he is not someone to be dismissed. He never has been. And he, as much as he can be kind of an extreme end of his own party, he is a barometer for where I think a lot of Republicans, particularly ones that have deep-seated um, and, you know, ambivalence about the government or even just skepticism and hostility towards it, where they are coming from. And that is a very important part of Donald Trump's base as well. Shane Harris is a staff writer for The Washington Post. And no, we are not related. That's the show. What Next is produced by Jason DeLeon, Mary Wilson, Mara Silvers, and Danielle Hewitt. You can find me on Twitter during the day. I'm at Mary's desk. I will talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>